All right, welcome back to the Watch Your Tone podcast. Once again, for the ninth week in a row, I'm your host, Tony D'Angelo, my co-host, Lou D'Angelo, Aaron Huffnagel, and he's back from the dead with a new mic. Ronnie Greco joins us after multiple weeks off. Ron, welcome back. Hope all of our listeners had a great Labor Day weekend, and we're happy to bring episode nine to you. we got Trevor Letowski joining us in a couple minutes here, longtime NHL player, current coach of the Windsor Spitfires, so we'll get to that in just a few minutes here. But, uh, Ron, welcome back. The fans want to hear from you. We just had a Ron 28 sale last week on the T-shirts. So welcome yourself back a little bit. I'm going to put you on the spot early. Yeah, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed that discount there on my behalf. Uh, so I finally picked up a mic, and this thing, I think it's, I think it's sounding pretty good right now. So let's see if I still got it. That's Chris, Ron. Ron, how many, think, how many think, you know, how many think you sold with that, with that code? Got to be at least five or six, right? No, you've got way more than five or six. Oh, you did a good job, Ron. Sold yourself you short. A good job. All right, let's uh, before we go over to Trevor, let's get uh, let's get caught up on what happened since we last left. Obviously, we're, we'll bust through the uh, the quarter, the semifinals real quick. Now we're in the conference finals. You had Tampa Bay and the Islanders in Game One last night, a convincing eight to two win for Tampa. Louie was busting chops with the Islanders fans yesterday on Twitter, and today he clarified saying he was just you know. The Islanders had a tough trip. You know, they go from Toronto to Edmonton. Tampa's well-rested. They're ready to go after a 4-1 series win over Boston. Uh, Tampa dominated last night. Do you guys think that Tampa is going to keep dominating? Or I do think the Islanders are going to start tightening it up a bit. And I don't think the series is going to go, you know, be a sweep or anything. But do you guys continue to see Tampa rolling right through them, as we've seen last night? Or uh, they look like the fucking – They look close up. They look like the Globetrotters. Yeah, I mean, strong. you got to think – the Islanders played game seven, which I don't even know if you call that a game seven out of the Flyers, but they had to go all the way. It was literally a game seven. It was horrible. <laughs> but it was they, still they, game seven. Flyers they, were barely out there, Huff. They didn't show up. But they had to go from Toronto to Edmonton. I mean, I don't know how Tampa's been there, what, four or five days. So, I mean, they haven't traveled. I'm not going to make that up as an excuse, but I think the Islanders will come out a lot better in the second game for sure. Thoughts, Lou? Yeah, things are definitely going to tighten up. I mean, you've seen how well – the Islanders play defense against the Flyers, so maybe they retired. You know, well, they ain't playing the Flyers anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, Tampa's got way more horses than the Flyers. The Flyers are they look pretty slow. Tampa's got guys that can really wheel around, but I think things will turn up a little bit, and we'll have a more competitive series from here on out. I think Pat Maroon was a great signing for Tampa. Tampa got Pat Maroon. They traded for Barkley Goudreau. They traded for Blake Coleman. They signed Luke Shen. They signed Zach Bogosian. All common theme. Heavy veterans. guns. They play hard. They play heavy. And, you know, maybe a year ago, the Islanders would have been a lot heavier and a lot, I want to say, tougher. Not tougher in the sense of fighting, but tougher in the sense of hockey-wise, hockey tough, than Tampa. They're not anymore. Tampa could go up against anybody and be just as tough, just as physical, just as heavy, just as big. Um, so I think Tampa – you know, I do think Tampa's going to win the series. Obviously, it's easy to say when they're up one nothing too, but – I think Tampa built that team so well. That third line, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, but that third line of Gord, Coleman, and Goudreau is caught. Like, they're making – they're wreaking havoc. Every time they're on the ice, the big boys are playing, and they're missing Stamkos. Yeah, I mean, that. you're missing arguably your best player in a way. Point has filled in for him. Point's been incredible, and he was unbelievable again last night. The Islanders, when they played the Flyers – so I'll go backwards a little bit. So the Islanders, when they played the Flyers, they're similarly, similarly built – the roster. They're both big. 
They're not the the fastest teams in the league. I think the Islanders are a little bit faster than the Flyers. They're not the fastest teams in the league. And I thought that the Islanders should have won that series way before seven games, but it kind of played right into their hands. The Flyers style played right into the hands of the Islanders. And the Islanders, you look at those D, Pellick, Mayfield, Pluck, they're big boys and they're heavy and they make plays. They got good patience. They make outlet passes. Andy Green's been real good. So I think the adjustment of playing Philly you know, one day removed of an emotional game seven win to then go play a high flying team like Tampa with Kucherov at the point and all these guys flying around the ice is an adjustment. You lose one game. doesn't matter. In the playoffs, it doesn't matter if you lose 10-1 or one nothing. You lost. So they regroup and make adjustments for game two. So I do think it'll it'll be a lot better game. Did, uh, did you boys see the stat? Elliot Friedman put it out. Tampa went 58 minutes and 53 seconds without missing the net. Yeah, and that usually doesn't happen. The Islanders usually blocking shots, deflecting them away. You know, it's just one of those games. They lose 8-2. Listen, doesn't matter. They come out, win 2-1 tomorrow night, 3-2 tomorrow night, and game one's long forgotten, and now you're, you're, you know, you're moving towards game three. So scores don't matter to me much. I just thought Tampa looked really good. My, my thing with the scores don't matter is I just think you're at a point where you're in, you're in the final four now, so I think you have no room to kind of throw away a game like that. But if you're going to – I do. I mean, I think traveling from Toronto to Edmonton was probably a pain in the ass if you're a player. Especially you've just you've been stuck in the bubble already, and it's it's a fucking grind. Hey, you're locked down that bubble. You got the room service. They got to go adjust. You know, maybe the one guy liked his sheets a little better. Every, you don't know, but Ronnie, what's your room service order if you're in the bubble? In the bubble, take a finger and fry. Yeah, I'm gonna grab a steak and an old glass of scotch. Pull <laughs> <laughs> me right to bed. I like it, Ron. Double shot. Like you're a veteran. You're like a 37 year old player rather than a, a 20. Uh, a 25-year-old. Uh, quickly over to the Western Conference. Before we turn this over, we're going to bring in Trev. Um, Dallas found a way to get past Colorado, which we didn't expect. We kind of called it. We said that uh, – or I kind of called it. I should say I'm going to take credit. I said that Colorado can come back no matter what the deficit was. And they did, but they just weren't able to finish it off. I mean, they gave up goals right after they scored. Disappointing ending for such a good Colorado team. But then Dallas comes out and absolutely shuts down Vegas. I mean, from minute one to minute 60, they shut them down, and Vegas had nothing. Vegas looked a little slow. They might have been tired from the game seven as well, and real surprised to see what happened there. But I do think game two is going to be a little bit different tonight. Guys, give me quick thoughts on the – we're not even going to get into the Vegas-Vancouver series because that was pure domination. Shouldn't have went seven either. But uh, give us a little thoughts on Dallas and Vegas. I just hope it – Sorry, go ahead, Lou. No, I just think we're uh, I think we're selling Dallas a little short. We really weren't giving them much of a chance in that Colorado series, and they pulled through, and you know they're moving on, and they look pretty good so far against Vegas, zero um, zero right now. But I think they have a they have a good chance of moving on here. Yeah, I mean Vegas. I'm watching right now too. They, they look good. I just think they got to get one in the first because you know getting shut out like that, they're not a team that gets shut out often. But uh, I don't know. I think they'll bounce back in game two. I think it'll be – it's going to be a hell of a series still, I think. I think Dallas is going to get get to the final. I think last season they got written off and people – people don't realize how close they were to beating the Blues. I mean, they're a goal away from beating the Blues game seven overtime. You got Heskinen back there, Klinberg. Last two times Dallas had D-men that had this many points two playoff series ago. They won the cup both those seasons. That was back in – I think they had Zuboff, and I can't remember the other D-man. I should, but – I didn't look it up. I just think Dallas, like, you get momentum from a game seven like that, a game seven win. A team like the Avalanche, you know, you know they they were coming. 
everyone had them beating you. I think they're just riding a wave right now. I think they're going to find a way to, to get to the cup. Dallas is a really good team. I mean, you look at that roster up and down. The roster is good. The goaltending has been good. Hudobin's been really good. You got Heskinen, Klimberg, Alessiak, Lindell, all playing really good on defense. Sakara has been really. Sakara has been really good for them. He had a big yeah. overtime. The rookie. The rookie. Yeah, Guriano comes in with yeah. a hat. No, it wasn't Guriano that day. Oh, Guriano had a hat in the series before. Kiviranta came in. He yeah, hasn't Kiviranta played comes all the in And scores three in a game seven when he hasn't played yet. I mean, that's like. Everybody's obviously talked about that. It's not new news for anyone, but that's like, that's the kind of stuff that happens like in a storybook uh, year. So maybe, maybe it's Dallas's year. Who knows? I mean, things are happening in their favor. Yeah. What break down that OT goal for me Ant. against that, Colorado? Yeah. The game seven. Like what is that? Just, is that just a well, breakdown like, defensively? Yeah. I think with a defenseman behind the net, especially left-handed like that, in my opinion, you want to flush him out. I think Colorado was probably a little tired at the time, you know, a little breakdown. Obviously, Dallas is moving guys trying to get Sakara behind the net, making a play out to the front. But when you get that tired, I guess most coaches would say immediately collapse everybody in, especially the guy behind the net. If you're not, if your defensemen are not going to go, if your defensemen are going to stay on each side of the post, then all five guys should be so tight where a pass could never get through the slot. Even wingers are. Yeah, let the wingers come right down too. And now you have all five guys like in a dice formation really close. Let the wingers go – like, sorry, let Sakara push the puck up the boards and then reset. And then, you you know, then you go out. Your wingers go out. Try and block out. a shot. Yeah. And Dude, you, that you was bad. Don't but, want a slot shot. And no, they were puck but watching. Tired. The defense behind that little sloppy. The, the young guy made a nice little bump out there. He got himself open, bang, the game's over. That's, good that's, how, that's how breakdowns happen. But I think if Colorado does it over again in a perfect world, which I'm sure they've done a million times, it's five tight as possible – and they let the Dallas defenseman Sakara just throw the puck up the wall for maybe a one-timer off the boards or, you know, puck possession, whatever. But, uh, you know, you can go back on that. There are probably 50 other plays in the game. But yeah, of course, of course. So, all right, let's let's uh, let's turn this over to Trevor Latosky. Let's bring it in. All right, we're now joined by current head coach of the Windsor Spitfires, Trevor Latosky, longtime NHLer, played 616 games over the course of seven seasons for the Phoenix Coyotes, Vancouver Canucks, Columbus Blue Jackets, Carolina Hurricanes, 84 goals, 117 assists, 201 points, and my former coach for the Starniest Thing. So, Trev, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks for having me on, Tone. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, we're going to let you do a little bit of this talk in the start. Tell us about uh, – we were all talking before this, the five of us. We just want to know about your path to the NHL in your first couple of years. Obviously, your second year in the league, I think, with the Coyotes was your biggest year point-wise. So kind of just walk us through the early stages of your career. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, you know, I, I was a forward. I think that the way that I was able to make it, I was pretty versatile. I was able to score, put points up in junior. But, um, you know, it doesn't always translate to the NHL level. And I was a guy, I think, that would, could be counted upon to kind of play up and down the lineup. I, I was never in a scoring role. Um, in pro, but I was a guy that if there was injuries, I could kind of, you can kind of plug and play me a little bit. Um, that's kind of the way, that's how I found my way. I was, I think a big thing for me, I made the Canadian world junior team as a 19 year old in my last year junior. So that kind of separated me as, you know, I was considered, you know, a top prospect at that point. Cause I wasn't a high draft pick. I was a seventh rounder. Um, the game was different back then tone, as you know, it was harder for smaller players um, guys that were under six feet were overlooked a lot, unless you were like high, high end skill. 
Um, so it was a little bit harder to find your way, a lot more clutching and grabbing and, and fighting. It was just a different game. Um, so yeah, I kind of had to, and nothing was given to me. That's for sure. I, I, I put up a lot of points my last year, junior, I went in the American league in my first year and, and struggled somewhat. I played, um, kind of a third line role in the American league. I think I had 30 points in 75 games, like very average. And then my second year pro was a really good year. I kind of established myself as probably the best player in, on our American league team. And I got called up a little bit. I played 14 games and just kind of got my feet wet. And then uh, my third year pro, which was my basically, yeah, you say my second year in the NHL, but it was basically my rookie year. I got a really good chance to play on a veteran team in Phoenix with uh, some really, really cool guys. Like JR was on that team, Kachuk, Rick Tockett, uh, Travis Green, uh, just I think it was the oldest team in the league at the time and I got to come into that lineup and and play in the top nine and I put up some numbers that year I played on the power play um, and then after that just kind of had to scratch and claw my way to through my career but uh, it was it was never easy felt like I was always kind of on a one-year deal yeah there's and especially now with the set the, sorry excuse me the salary cap the flat cap is kind of like that for guys all the time bouncing team to team teams looking for guys on one year, seven, $800,000 deals now. So, and them guys, they come to the rink every day and it's like, they feel like it could be their last day at any time. If they're out of the lineup one game to the next. So I'm sure. It's you felt that. And I'll tell you this tone at the end of my career, cause I left the league at 31 and I ended up playing a couple of years overseas in Russia. But yeah, when I'm 31 and I'm kind of starting to make, I mean, I wasn't never making a ton of money, but I was starting to get up there around a million. And at the time the, the league minimum is about 500,000 and uh, they'd rather, it was just the kind of the start of the salary cap year. And even back then they'd rather pay that young player less. And, and that's how I kind of got weeded out uh, a little bit earlier than I had hoped. Yeah, that's happening now more than ever too. Just based off a of salary cap, you're paying the top guys the big yeah. bucks, and then you gotta you gotta squeeze a couple of small contracts in there to get by on the year. Favorite spot to play out of the out of the four teams you played on? Where would you say was your favorite spot? Uh, probably Vancouver, just because we had a good team both years, and it was a Canadian city as a Canadian kid growing up. And uh, the other three teams I played weren't traditional hockey markets it was phoenix and raleigh and columbus uh so all good places to play too i don't think i played in a bad spot but vancouver was different i lived right downtown i think you can attest just coming on the road there it's it's a pretty yeah. cool city and vancouver's a hot spot for the roads <laughs> <laughs> yeah like for the, the nhl draft was in van just a couple of years ago i hadn't been there for quite a while like 10 years and just going back there it's it's a unique city there's not too many like it in north america i would say that feel different than the others but i think vancouver has its uh, unique feel and it was uh it was great and like i said we had a good team and, and that obviously makes a difference too when you're winning games yeah well when you go to calgary edmonton winnipeg and you're like you're dying to get out of there after a road trip especially if it's in the winter or when you go to vancouver like it doesn't matter the weather doesn't matter. The place is unreal. Like so much stuff to do, so much going on, big city. So it's like night and day compared to the other Western teams. So I could, I was a yeah. Phoenix guy though. You know, I, obviously I played in Phoenix and yeah. I, did you live in Scottsdale when you played there? I did. Yeah. 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 It was, I feel like Scott, even though like it's not a hockey market, you're a Canadian, obviously maybe an American, maybe it's a little easier, but Scottsdale, you can't beat Scottsdale living wise. 
Like yeah, it doesn't... And, uh, so that's where I broke into the league, right? As a 21 year old. And, and that's it's a good time to be in now too. They're, they're having fun, <laughs> they're golfing every day. And it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. Keep focused on the hockey. No, for sure. Louis, uh, Louis's got a question for the KHL for you. Sure. Yeah. I just wanted to know how different is it when you go over and play in the KHL versus uh, playing here in the NHL? <laughs> uh, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Um, you know, you get anyone that's played at the NHL level and Tony will tell you, you get treated like gold and, and it's it, everything around the game. So when you're on the ice, you got to kind of take care of business yourself, but everything else uh, away from the practice or, or the game you're taking care of, like with the best of the best, whether that's meals or hotels or um, doctors, uh, anything away from the game is, 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 is top notch. And you kind of get used to that. And so I, I got that, I was spoiled for 10 years and then I, I went to Russia and, and um, it was, it was the opposite basically. I mean, you're going into an arena, um, the facilities, like it's just, it's, you can't even compare it to the American league. It's just like a, you know, some of the rinks are almost like just minor hockey rink type of thing, you know, and you're getting four or 5,000 people. You're used to playing in front of 15 to 20,000. And uh, it, it was challenging. I mean, I was always a player that survived in the league because I talked with Tone about being versatile, but also took pride in being a good teammate and being coachable and just enjoyed being at the rink. And, and for the first two or for the first time, basically in my hockey life, I wasn't really enjoying the game. I, hard to build relationships there half the team didn't speak English um, the coaches didn't speak English so it's hard to be coachable and and be uh, detailed when you don't even really know what the system is you know so that that was challenging I kind of was just winging it and I'm just not good enough to do that and I you know I, I had a tough time over there I'll be honest just because I just didn't feel comfortable uh, the ice is bigger and a lot of people you know I was a pretty good skater in my playing career and so people would think it would be you go over there and it's easy, but um, everyone can skate over there. I would say the talent level was better than I thought. And, and on the, on the big ice, especially it's just, it's, it's almost harder for skilled players because it's so harder to get inside and, and get into those dangerous scoring areas. Cause everyone just clogs up the middle and you're left way out on the flanks. You got the puck on your stick more, but uh, you're not creating anything. So it was a tough year or tough couple years. Sorry. If you talk to my wife, I should get her in here, but it was even harder for her. Um, I was at the rink a lot, uh, a lot of two days, things like that. Uh, kind of a grind. Uh, whereas my wife was just kind of stuck. It was almost like a prison sentence for a couple of years. Just sitting at the apartment. <laughs> you say, uh, you said, um, you said two days. Was that like actually skating twice in training camp, working out twice, kind of like old school Russians? Yeah, like it was um, not even guys, not even just in training camp, but even in the regular season, sometimes they'd bring you twice, you know, like oh. early in the season. If because you play lost games, and, and that's another thing people would say, Oh, you only play, I think it was 56 games at the time, that's going to be easier. And when you get over there, you're begging to play hockey games instead of practicing. You'd rather play 82 than 56 because the week is so long. They'll, they'll bring you for two, two a days. Yeah. And there, there was times like a lot of times you'd play four games on the road and then four games at home. And that's kind of how it was. So the schedule was pretty structured, but you'd go on the road for four games. It would be eight days because of the travel. It's, it's a big country. You're, you're on the plane a lot. So eight days feels like 18. 
and, and you get home and you can't wait for that day off. And there was numerous times where they didn't give us that day and they'd bring us into the rink for Tuesday oh. if we didn't perform. And, and so that was, that's different after you're coming from the NHL and you're, you're protected even in the training camp uh, through the union and stuff. So it was challenging, but I will say this, I don't want to sound like a crybaby or anything. And it was, um, it was certainly challenging and it, it made, it changed me for the better. It made me appreciate being uh, Canadian or like living in North America even more. Um, it made me appreciate my time in the NHL even more. And it, it also let me see that side of the world and it kind of opened my eyes up a little bit and it's an experience that I would never give it back uh, for anything. I'm glad I had to go through it. So I will say that. The, uh, the Russian guys, like obviously I play with a fair share of Russians. They kind of look at it as if it's no big deal, like, cause they're so used to it growing up. Yeah. But any American that's gone over there for more than one year that I've talked to his second year, he wants to sign like with three days of training camp left, dying to skip, <laughs> dying to skip the training camp. They're pushing tires or off ice. He's like, I might have an NHL deal. Let me, let me get back to you guys. in two they're, over there like, they're over there like chopping wood and shit. Yeah, he's like, I'll get back to you in a couple well, that's weeks. The and then we'll it's see. so true. And, and the, they, you're right, Tone, exactly. That, and you're talking about NHL players, but the guys that don't play in the NHL, they're just thrilled to be playing pro hockey, and they'll never never hear a negative word out of them. They never complain. They just come in, punch the clock, fairly quiet guys, and they just work. You know, whereas yeah. you got, we had, a, we, I played in Astana, which was outside of Russia in Kazakhstan. So we had like seven imports. So most of the guys that played in the NHL and we were looking at each other, like everyone's like, we're complaining every day. Like what's going on here? Right. And the Russians, uh, the Russians don't complain at all. And I will say this to my, so I played two years, guys. My, my first year that I played, I was still hoping to get, I was kind of the reverse of what you said, Tom. So my first year, I didn't have to go to the training camp because I was trying to get an NHL deal. Um, it was the first year of the KHL, so uh, some big players were starting to go, led by Yarmer Yager went that year, uh, a couple other big names, and so I kind of threw my name in the hat late, and it was late August. I ended up signing, and I only had a few days of camp, and then I got into my season. It was year two where I had the full effect of leaving. Okay. Like, I had to leave my, my, the lake house July 15th, and yeah. you're going <laughs> into the mountains in, like, southern Kazakhstan yeah. for five weeks training, you know, and that yeah. – that's Five weeks tough. into that season, you're ready to pack it up and get right back home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's All right, we're going uh, We're gonna move into your coaching career a little bit. So obviously, you started off as an assistant. Sarnia was the first job for you, right? The assistant. Yeah. Yeah. So assistant job in Sarnia, and how many years were you in Sarnia as assistant? I feel like I came in like midway through. Um, I was in Sarnia for um, for five years, I believe. Yeah. I think so I had you. Were you- there- a year after hours. you came in then, because I had you for two years as assistant with Jocko, and yeah. then uh, you took over his head. Yeah. So we'll get right into the head coaching job. How, What kind of transition was it as a player to then assistant coach, then head coach in a, a major junior team in the top junior league in the world? Uh, yeah, it's it's certainly a transition. You, you really don't know what you're getting into and, until you kind of get your feet wet. and you're. It's almost like being a player again where you're – always gaining experience and you kind of think you got things figured out, but you learn something new the next year. Uh, You keep kind of growing as a coach, just kind of as you, like you do as a player, I would say, as I sit here today, Tone, I'm a a much different coach and I would hope to say better coach than, than I was when, when you had me, I was pretty young and raw and new to it. Um, But I think my values haven't changed. That's for sure. Um, 
you know, I'm always at the forefront, always trying to treat players the right way. And all that's the reason I got into it was I played for a lot of different guys and I felt like I knew kind of how to treat players and, and get the most out of them and try to create a positive environment where the guys just come in and, and enjoy it. And not a country club by any means, because you, you need discipline, I think, especially in junior uh, the players need to know and be held accountable, but um, they also have to feel comfortable with, with the coaches. And I, I know that all coaches say that. And, you know, I think guys, most guys are trying to do it and the game is certainly changing, but it, it, that's something that I've always taken, taken pride in and tried to have good relationships, you know, during and, and, and after when players leave and guys like you go on to have great careers. It's uh, that's the best part of my job is to, to watch you guys do your thing. So go ahead, Huff. No, I was going to say, do you think you came at a time of coaching where it was a bit of a transition period where a lot of more players are getting involved and, you know, not, I don't want to say it's definitely not a softer style these days, but less of that Mike Keenan, like stick through the roof, kind of fuck you attitude and like more of like listening to the players and trying to see how they feel from a, you know, day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the communication that that part of the game has just changed almost 180 compared to even when I played, um, you know, just 12, 15 years ago when I was playing the, 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 the communication level is just completely different. It's more challenging as a coach. I think you got to do your homework and be prepared. And if you're going to take players on the lineup or scratch players or sit players that you can't just do it on a whim, you have to be, you have to kind of have, a reason and you have to prove it. You have to tell the player kind of why you did it. You can't just do it. And like, I mean, if I got scratched in a game in my pro career, the coach might not talk to me for 10 days. I missed three games and I don't even know what I did wrong. You know, Whereas like a ghost. That, <laughs> yeah, they, they wouldn't say a word. And, and then, so now like it's constant communication. The players know exactly kind of where they're at and, and, not only that, but we kind of have to help them get back and find their game and find things that it's not just, you know, telling them why, but kind of telling them how they can be better and just really being open. And it's, it's always still a challenge because no matter how much of a communicator you, you try to be players at the end of the day, just want to play. And it's, it's almost impossible to keep all your guys happy and, and they don't always have to like say love you or like you, but just be honest and fair and communicate with them. And, and then I think you're, for the most part, you're going to get uh, as much as you possibly can out of them. And if it doesn't work out, if it's not a fit, maybe they move somewhere else and, and try somewhere else, something different. But uh, we certainly or I take a lot of pride in, in communicating with the players and making sure they, they kind of know where they stand. I always, I always say like to anybody I talk to or any other players, it works in the same way since you've played probably, if you're happy with your role, and you like the way the coach plays you, you like the coach. <laughs> if you're not happy with your role and you don't like the way he plays you, you hate the guy. <laughs> yeah, you can't stop talking about him. <laughs> so it goes it goes like that for every level, every team. I feel like the players have been the same, have to be for years. Just the way it's just the way it goes. Yeah. That's so how was it how was it coaching Ant there in Sarnia for two years? I mean, you gotta keep it PG for the podcast, but <laughs> how was it? No, it was we hard for sure. <laughs> it was rating, yeah. Well, I had him for was it three and a half years, Tom? Yeah, two, like one and a half as head coach, two as an assistant. Yeah. So I had a really good relationship with Tony before I became the head coach because I was running the D. Um, and uh, I think our relationship grew. There was certainly challenges, and you guys all know Tony's emotional guy, and he gets no, really. <laughs> 
cares a lot. And, uh, you know, we tried to manage that as, as well as we can. At the end of the day, though, we, we liked him. And I think he knew that we cared about him and we had good relationships, but it was certainly peaks and valleys and we had bumps in the road and, and things like that. But the one thing about Tony that is admirable is that he's a worker and he's a competitor and that always comes out, you know, and sometimes he had a tough time controlling that when he was young. Um, but, uh, you know, his, I think he was a good teammate, you know, it wasn't like he was a guy that I think there was some misconceptions about Tony when he was a young player that he was some kind of a party guy and he's a bad teammate and things like that. And that certainly wasn't the case. You know, he was a guy that was, you know, the players for the most part really liked playing with him, And, uh, and he worked and he expected to win. And, uh, you know, he, he would get frustrated, no question. And, and in junior, you know, he, you know, we had lots of conversations one-on-one, <laughs> -on -one, but, you know, his brain was a little bit ahead of most players at our level. Right. And he thought, you know, I don't know, they, they, they should be thinking the game the same way he was. And, and especially in Sarnia, when I became the head coach, at least our first year, we had a young team. Um, and so that was even harder, it, hard for me because I'm a competitor too. And of course it's hard. I want to win too. But for Tony, he was younger and he, he wants to win. He, he almost didn't get it. He didn't understand. I don't want to put words in Tony's mouth, but this is just my, my memories. But at the end of the day, I think at, at the end of it, when we ended up moving him to Sault Ste. Marie, our relationship was very strong. We'd been through a lot. And, uh, I think he left Sarnia, um, you know, with good memories. And, and I think that he had a pretty good experience there overall. Yeah. My, honestly, I still talk about it all the time. Like, uh, Stromer and I, one of my teammates, Ryan Strom, we're, we still follow the OHL real close. And I always say like my biggest regret in hockey so far was the way, like I handled myself in junior almost mm -hmm. like, cause like I agree with a lot of you are saying, but I was hard on my teammates a lot. Yeah. Like, cause what are you saying? I wanted to win. And Trevor's first year when he took over as head coach, we were the worst team in, in the CHL. And you knew we were going to be the worst team in CHL just based off of roster right at the beginning of the year. Like we had no veterans. We had went all in the first two years and there really was nothing left for us. We couldn't bring in a guy if we wanted to. We had no, no trade chips, anything. But as a competitor, you're still like, you still want to win. And it was my draft year, to, you know, and if I could go back and do it over again, I thought I had like great leadership qualities 50% of the time and another 50% yeah. of the time, it was like this guy's out of his mind. So it went back and forth. And it was always hard for me. Like as a kid, I played with – me and Ronnie played together for, for five years. And it was the same way from when I was 10 years old. I would do the same thing. Like he's laughing over there. And um, so it's my biggest regret as a player. I would have liked to be like – you know, I felt like from year two, I could have been the captain of this thing. And if I would have handled myself the, the way I would expect to handle myself now. So obviously you learn – like you grow up and you learn. And I still – you know, get some blow up sometimes like that'll never change just my personality, but yeah. being able to handle it and learn from it is my biggest regret. I wish I could have go back six, seven years in time and, and restart because I thought me and you, especially like being a relatable coach and a guy that you can get along with could have done, uh, could have done good things together. Obviously it might've been a little bit too late because I was coming on my last year and, you know, yeah. Sarnia still wasn't ready to go for it, but still yeah. something I think about and regret. And obviously, uh, but at the end of the day, it helped me, helped me get better as I got older. So yeah. It's uh, would like to do it over. Yeah, Trev. So I I probably came out to Sarnia. I think like six or seven times. 
And I would say probably six out of the seven times Tony was sitting next to me in the Cicerelli's box, eating some chicken fingers, watching the stink play. He was literally suspended like almost every single time I came out. So it is pretty cool to see, you know, how he matured through the years, but I'm sure he was a huge pain in your ass for a lot of his uh, career with the stink. hundred percent. You know what? There was a process in like, Tony said like there was days or even weeks and sometimes a month where we thought we had, we had Tony going the right way and he was great. And all those things started to creep in about leadership and, you know, like being the captain and things like that. And then there would just be a setback, right? It's the consistency and like the relentlessness of what it takes. And I'm sure Tony sees that obviously now at the NHL level with some of the leaders on, on, on your team tone, but I try to tell these junior players still all the time. And it's um, sometimes it just falls on deaf ears unless they see it and they see that kind of relentless work that the top players in the world do. And not just the work, but the kind of the mindset, the mentality, how they kind of approach going to the rink every day until they see it, they don't quite get it. And uh, I was hopeful that you would figure it out because you certainly showed glimpses and, and you've obviously you obviously have, and uh, I'm proud of you for doing it. No, I appreciate it. Now, did you did you play with Shane Doan in Phoenix? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, like Shane Doan was actually uh, he probably doesn't even know it because I, you know, we just talked. Is like we were really good buddies, even though he was 40 and I was 20. But uh, you know, you watched him that year, and it was a year of transition for the Coyotes, bringing young guys in, and Donor maybe the best player in Coyotes, you know, franchise history, and. He, some games he was playing force line and, you know, he was getting older and they were talking about trading them and he was the captain of the team. And you watched the way, like I watched the way he handled himself. Yeah. And I said like, all right, you could compare that to myself when I was in Starnia at, at, at 18. It's, you know, obviously it's way different NHL, but yeah. the way he handled himself where he probably wanted to go crazy that year, it's a frustrating yeah. year we were losing. It might've been the last, it was the last year of his career. And, yeah. but he was still able to handle himself at a professional level every day. And even if he was pissed, so he taught me a lot, probably more than he knows. And he was a great guy, like a uh, good family, good guy. So he was somebody I learned a lot off. It's probably a good thing that I got traded to, got traded to Phoenix and, and be with him and got to learn a lot off him. But yeah, he's still my whole career. That's, that's like, as soon as you meet him, right. Tone, you just, everyone, I think that knows donor says the same thing, but it's just special, special guy, like salt to the earth and zero ego. And he just goes about his business. It's uh it's it's nice to see and fun to watch him. Yeah, he was the best. All right, I got one more one more coaching question for you. Yeah. Um, any coaches you play for? Was there any specific coach you said I like to model my coaching career after a lot of like what this guy did? Was there somebody you took a lot from and or remembered a lot from, or you kind of just tried to become? Well, obviously, you want to become your own coach, but if there was a guy along the way. Um. Good question. Uh, I would say, yeah, you take like, you know, you do take a little bit from everyone. I think it's really important. I've learned this each year that you really have to be yourself. I think first and foremost, you try to be phony or try to pretend to be someone that you're not. And the players are going to see through that for sure. Um, I played for good coaches in the NHL and all of them I respected and liked for like them for some things and disliked them for others. I played for Gerard Gallant who is just ultimate players coach and treated people the right way and had a ton of success in the NHL here recently. And I'm sure he's going to get hired sooner than later. Uh, so I took a lot from him, just the way he treated people. Uh, I played for Peter Laviolette in Carolina and Mark Crawford and both really competitive, fiery guys. 
both a lot of similarities, but um, very prepared, um, very good motivators, both of them, I would say. Um, they had a lot of similarities, but they were hard on you if, if you didn't perform. But I was a type of player I didn't mind that. Um, I think today you have to pick your spots and get to know your players before you can kind of be so hard. But those guys were very prepared and they found a way uh, to kind of make every game. And, and maybe you feel this now, Tony, playing the NHL for the Rangers. But when I was playing, especially for those two, it felt like every single game they found a way to make it the most important game of the season. Like I felt sitting in my stall, it felt like you had to win this game and somehow, um, yeah. and that's pretty impressive. And I don't think that the average fan or people sitting at home, they see 82 games and game 57, like these guys are probably just going through the motions and, and it's not the case, at least when you're playing for a coach that can motivate that way. And, um, say that Lavi and, and Crow probably as well uh, that had both of those so I played for a good coach I had Mark Hunter as well in junior he's my first coach in junior he, Mark, Mark and Dale obviously doing their thing in London but I still have a relationship with with Mark and, and now Dale through coaching but uh, great people and obviously a ton of success treat people the right way Mark was hard on players back then but um, he's kind of learned over the years as well, but, uh, that's another guy. So yeah, I mean, you're always learning for sure. And those guys, you know, different things, but, uh, yeah, I think NHL coaches, I would say this, if you're an NHL head coach, you're doing something right. And, um, you know, there's a presence about those guys that you can feel it. And I'm sure I've seen uh, Quinner, I mean, we were talking before we came on the air, I've seen him present at the clinics and things like that. And, <laughs> You know, he's got some presence himself, and I'm sure he, he motivates you guys pretty well. There. You, you got any good stories of Lavi just giving it to the boys during the intermission? <laughs> uh, you know, like he, you know, he was just like, you talk about uh, competitive, and he was just a guy that lived and died. He wanted to win so bad. And, and when you weren't winning, you felt it in the room, you know, and uh, so – you know, if you're on a two game losing streak and you've got two or three days of practice, like it's not going to be comfortable at the rink. The rink's like a funeral. Yeah. Like he's not talking to you. He's not smiling at you. You're walking down the hallway. He's coming the other way. He's not going to say, Hey, good morning to you. You know, you're going to feel it. He's not happy with you and you got to kind of work through it. Um, Crawford was, was really hard on players at times. Um, you know, just held you accountable. And I think with both of those guys, I would say though, it was great is that they treated everyone the same way. It wasn't like they were hard on me, but not hard on someone else. Like they expected a lot from everyone. And as a player that goes a long way too. And, you know, they, they, they gain respect from the players when you're kind of treating everybody the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what you have to do is like, if you're going to be a hard coach, you got to be hard on the whole group. <laughs> yeah. If you start giving like the top six, like a little special privilege, the bottom six guy who's like, I'm yeah. done with this guy. It goes, <laughs> like, it goes quick. Like any bottom six mistake, you're just getting shredded. The top six guys are like, yeah, eh, we'll let you slide a little bit. Yeah. All right, boys, any, uh, any more questions? We let Trev, uh, we let Trev go. Come on, Thanks for coming, Trev. You guys good? Trev, appreciate it. Make sure you say hello to the family and uh, yeah. best of luck whenever the spits get started back up. All right. Great seeing you, Tony. Good to see you, boys. Thanks, Trev. Take care. Take care. Of this guy. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Once again, thanks for uh, thanks for Trevor for coming on. Great guy. He was a great coach. Really, uh, really relatable guy to to play for. He got along with the players so well, 
and uh, just a good person, good family. So appreciate him coming on. Wish him nothing but the best whenever Windsor gets started back up. And I got a new segment coming up right here that none of the three co-hosts have any idea what's coming. But I'm going to ask each of you guys a trivia question, a little hockey trivia question based off of teams that are still in the playoffs right now. It's pretty easy, right? The, you know, the first three are pretty easy. Ron, I'm going to start with you. I want you to tell me what round Braden Point was drafted in and what year. Braden Point was drafted, I want to say, early second round in like 2015. Wrong. You're out. Uh, 2014, third round of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Who went 2014, first round of the Tampa Bay Lightning? Is this that, me? That was that's me, Ron. Thanks, Tony. No, I know. I, who are you, I was saying who you asked. Like, no, that was I'm just Ron. Really had no idea what happened in the 14 draft. Ron, Ron all right, girl. So we're gonna start keeping track of this. Ron, you're 0 for one on our daily on our week. Like you guys are have no clue when I'm gonna ask these questions. I'm just gonna pop them out. So you're 0 for one. Now we turn it to Huff. I answer it right. Let me get a 20. <laughs> I'll give you a little Christmas bonus. Give you get this one. Christmas right. bonus, <laughs> all right, Huff. Life. This is a tough one. Now let me see your hands. Let me see that you don't have that phone in your hand. What three players did Boston take ahead of Matt Barzell Ooh. in the draft? They had you name all three of them. Picks. You got to name all three of them. Oh my God! I can only name one. Um, Matt Grizzlick. Oh my God! Oh my God! Fellas, little Jake study DeBrus- in here. Jake DeBrusque is one. Zubros. And Matt, the other dude, the other two don't even have anymore. I'm, I'm too Zobro. All right, Lou, you get the easiest one since you're my brother. Good. When was the last time the Tampa Bay Lightning won the Stanley Cup? Oof. Oh my God. Uh. Come on, Lou. I got a ballpark for this one. This is really come, bad. That this three, is so easy. Co-host on the hockey podcast I have no idea about anything here. <laughs> oh four. Party St. Louis, right? That year? Yeah, he was on the team. He was. Yeah, he played. He played. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh that's an over three. Wow, we took big L's there, boys. That's terrible. My oh, question was a fucking joke. Your yeah, question was the easiest one, it's the most recent one. The three players? And we ran a poll on it on the Instagram or I think Twitter Ronnie's or was the easiest. What? You knew what round and what year Braden Point got picked? Ron, Ron's was the easiest. No, that was I mean, a year and a round off. Lose was easiest, then Ron's, then mine. Hey, you're only a year and a round off. That ain't bad. It's fucking joke. <laughs> yeah, but you're the only other pro player here, Huff. What the fuck? What's that mean? That doesn't mean my knowledge of... It means you should know your history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to get it. Let's get into a little... Uh, we've talked about this before, and we've been pretty adamant that McDavid's the best player in the league. But following McKinnon's postseason performance... Is there a case to be made that McKinnon has taken over as the best player in the league and McDavid sits number two? I'm starting to change my tune here. I don't know if I would say McDavid's two. Maybe it's more like one and one A. I mean, you see the playoff McKinnon's having, it's unreal. 25 points, and he's just an absolute game changer. So if he's not one, he's definitely one A in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you can do the one and one A. I mean, I agree with that 100%, but then you can put – Put McDavid on Colorado in McKinnon's spot. He's going to do just as much or maybe more, in my opinion. Wait, what? You know he plays with Dreisaitl, right? Okay, yeah, okay. But the team is just totally different. But what does McKinnon do with Edmonton? It's, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. I, I, think, <laughs> I don't know. What, <laughs> well, what I'm saying is if you put McDavid on Colorado, he's going to Hold on, no, no. I, I'm going to stop you there. It, both of them are so good at – 
and their team, their surrounding players that they play with in the power play and on their lines are so good that that part doesn't matter. Who would you rather take right now, McKinnon or McDavid? McDavid. All right. Huff? Yeah. Stick to McDavid? I think they're, I think they're tied right now. It's, McKinnon's – dude, 25 points, 14 games in the playoffs. is fucking whack. I yeah, mean, we got to keep in mind – You do that with like a 99 overall player in Shell. It's not – like <laughs> he's, do, he's dominating the best league in the world. Bro, but do you remember McDavid was leading the playoffs in points with like six games Wait, less? I, I know, and I get that, but unfortunately, they got knocked out. It's just, it is what it is. McKin- it's not McKinnon's fault that he's ripping it up. No, I, I agree with both your arguments there. Like the way, the reason I brought it up is because what McKinnon continued to do after McDavid was out, McDavid was incredible in that first round. Yeah, so absolutely. They lost. You know, he might have, and he only played in a five game series, not a, not a seven game series. So he was just getting started. He would have definitely had 25 points. Everybody knows what McDavid does. But just the way McKinnon played in those series and Colorado was down and stuff, just every time he's on the ice, he's going full speed. He's just like a – he's a bear on, on skates. He's an absolute bear. He just – the way he – I mean, the guy gets moving two strides, he's gone. he got them big wide track legs. It's incredible to watch. And I think that he's put himself right into the mix of – best player in the league. I'd still go with McDavid right now. You can't take anything away from him, but uh, it's one. I, I'm going to agree with Louis. Is it's that one poor guy in one A? That poor guy McKinnon, as soon as they scored, Dallas scores, they pan right to him on the bench. Yeah. yeah he, he looked like a ghost. Yeah. He was ready to cry. <laughs> poor he's, guy. he's a competitor. He plays hard. You could tell he just plays hard every shift. Yeah. That was a great series. Fuck. Great series. They've all been, it was good to see games, you know, three game sevens. That's what the NHL wants. That's what the fans want. Um, transitioning, transitioning into a player that I've been, I love this guy as a player and Ranger fans probably don't love him, but I love him as a player. Barzell. I've been talking about him a lot. I talked about him last episode. We've talked about him on Twitter. He's incredible. He's fun to watch. He makes plays all over the ice, creates offense all over the ice for a smaller guy. He's almost impossible to get off the puck with that skating stride and the way he, you know, pushes his legs out. I've been saying, I wrote this down like uh, about the Scott Mayfield goal, which we're going to put a clip of this up on our Instagram. So you guys can see what I'm talking about. So when he scored against the Flyers Mayfield, the way Barzell is able to control all five guys playing defense, just when he has the puck, they're so puck focused on him and he makes little plays. So what he did in this clip, you'll see is he carries the puck, like he's able to carry the puck up the wall and slips it through. Everly, Everly makes the same plays. Everly's done a great job for them too. He slips the puck through. He slips the puck right through the, the forward covering the defenseman's stick. So he's got the guy on his ass. So now that guy's out of the play. The second, the forward, the F, you know, F1, F2, everyone, sorry, F2, you'd probably call him, that's covering the strong side D. He crashes down to make the play. The D slides over. Barzell makes one play, beats two guys. Now the middle guy, the guy covering the far D, he has to come over to try to make a play on the defenseman that's in the middle of the ice. It's a quick little slip over, and you have the whole entire zone to make a play. And nobody does it better than Marzell. He's And I think teams try to stop him from doing it, but he'll make a play past two guys with like it's easy. He puts it right through people. He comes out of cycles and, you know, obviously Barzell, you know, his north-south speed is incredible. He takes guys one-on-one coming off the rush, but the way he cars guys in the middle of a cycle in zone and he can, he can attack the middle of the ice. Like you said, you know, that F1 has to go down and attack. He gets beat. Now you're in the slot. You're in no man's land. 
You, got, you have to go. He beat so many guys off the cycle. Everyone's out of position. There's McKinnon and Barzell do this as good as, you know, obviously there's a ton of other guys do it, but as good as I've seen of beating people that, you know, beating two people at once and creating offense for other guys, you beat two people at once. Somebody else has to come recover. And now one more play, there's a guy wide open. So Eberle's done a really good job of it too for the Islanders. Like they're making them plays and Barzell makes them all game. He creates so many chances, maybe not even off the first pass he makes, but off this, you know, a pass the next guy makes all because of the, you know, the beginning play he made. It's he's fun to watch. He's actually taking a beating right now. He's being getting hit and high sticks in the face, pucks off the side of the head, his nose is bleeding, his eyes. That guy's bleeding. noggin has a magnet. And he's still, you know, he's battling away, which is good to see because he's a uh, you know, more of a skilled player. Maybe people don't think he was gonna gonna put up a fight, but he's a competitive guy and he's played great. How- and How much is he getting paid? That yeah, that brings me to my next point. The Islanders are maybe a little strapped on you know cash cap wise. I'm sure they're going to try to figure it out to get him. But I would 100 percent if I had the money as a team. I don't know who has the money. I'm not uh, a capologist for the 31 teams in the league or 30 right now. Um, 31. Who would offer Sheetham? Sorry, would you offer Sheetham? Not who would. Would you offer Sheetham and potentially have to give up four first-round picks, maybe a little bit less? So I'll hop in here. I mean, I kind of think it's weird how the NHL does it with the RFA status. A team really kind of controls you for a long time before you could kind of, you know, choose where you go. Um, somebody did ask Lou Amarello if Barzell was offer-sheeted, would he match the offer? And he said without a doubt, yes, that they're going to match it. So you got to think as an owner, is it worth offer sheeting a guy to know you're not even going to get him and then possibly create some bad blood with another team um, and maybe screw yourself out of trades in the future or, you know, working with that team. So I'm not sure I would offer sheet him. I mean, the talent's there, the production's there, everything like that. But at the end of the day, he's not coming to your team. So it's kind of just a piece of paper that you could wipe your ass with. <laughs> All right. So you're a GM, right? Let me ask you this question. You call Lou Lamarillo and, you know, he won't trade you Barzell. Under any circumstance, I'm not trading you Barzell. But you see that the Islanders are, in, a, you know, in a cap problem. They might not be able to – if they can't make other trades to get other guys out of town, they might not be able to afford them. So I'm looking at the compensation sheet as we speak. It would probably be in the two first-round picks, a second and a third-round pick to acquire them. Don't you just go ahead and make the offer? They match it, match it. They don't match it, they don't match it. You know, you want the guy. Why not take your shot at getting him then? You know, they're not making the trade for you, so let's make let's sense. do this. I mean, that's what happened with Aho. Yeah, and speaking of Aho, somebody asked who's better, Aho. Who would you rather have, Aho or Barzell? And that was a uh, that was a tough question because Aho plays. You know, he, he's killing penalties and he plays. You know, a hard style game. He's pretty pretty feisty for a smaller guy. That one is such a toss up, but I'll take Barzell. Yeah, I'm not, taking not just because Aho put my jock strap on the top of the Maple Leafs rig, but I would genuinely take Barzell just for, for myself. But that is that is so close. It's such a good question, he said, Aho or Barzell. And the, uh, the I don't Bar- know, man. So I, I have to like you guys can answer it too, but I'd have to take Barzell. And if I was a team, what I was just saying, I got off topic a little bit there, I would offer she Barzell in a minute. I'm taking Barzell too. And what about so Look at Barzell and Point. Who are you taking there? I feel like that's just another false point. Braden Point. I feel like they're very similar. Point looks great right now. It's hard to say you wouldn't take him over like 90% of the players in the league, if not more. 
he's a stud and he's a gamer. He plays hard. He kills penalties. He does all those things. Do you yeah. think Barzell gets more points in a different system? The Islanders, I mean, Barzell, you know, the Islanders play a team system where, you know, they don't have a ton of guys getting Probably, many Yeah. Points. I mean, you're probably right. He'll get I mean, more points in a different system where yeah, he plays yeah. a lot more time on the PP. So the Islanders have two power plays they use, you know, he'll, he'll definitely get more points, but the plays he makes are there. And that's all that, you know, when you're watching the game, he makes more plays than. Who's it been? Him, Eberle, and Anders Lee or Brock Nelson? Anders Lee. Brock Nelson's on the other line with Josh Bailey, and they've been really good together too. By the way, I have to – I may have made a mistake when I was talking about that Mayfield goal. It may have been Eberle that slid that puck through and did the same thing I was talking about Barzell, but I'll look it up. But either way, Barzell, the way he beats guys and beats two players at once is basically my point. So we'll have to double-check on that, but uh, I just wanted to clarify that quick. So we'd all in agreement besides Louie that we would offer Sheet Barzell. Yeah, 100%. We ran a poll. Louie ran a poll on Twitter. If you were starting a team right now and you could only take one of the players, who would you take? McCarr, Point, Barzell, Hughes. Probably the four most prominent. I mean, Heskinen should have been there too if you go by the most prominent guys in the playoffs. It basically was saying out of the top performers in the playoffs, which of the four would you build your team with? Don't worry about money. Like who's making what right now? Just pick me. Give me the player. I'm gonna take Barzell only because I mean, you see what he's doing. He has three 60-plus point years in a row. 85 as a rookie. You know, you you base your your team off a center. I feel like you know first line center, and he's proven himself to be that. So I think I would start my team with Barzell right now. I'm gonna take Braden Point. I think. I mean. It's it's a tough question, but I think point, in my opinion, is the best option. I think he's going to give you the best chance to win a cup. He just plays all all three ends of the ice there. So I don't know. I like Braden Point's game a lot. Mm, point or McCarr? I don't know which one to pick. Something about those right-handed players. Would you trade? Well, Barzell's ready too. Would you trade either one? Would you trade McCarr for Point? I mean, no. it's would you trade Point for McCarr? Isn't it weird how the NHL stars never really get traded like that? Shea Weber for Subban a couple years back. Really, it's not, it doesn't happen much, though. No, never. Uh, I wish I could, no, no one I need, we need a We need a solid answer out of you. Pointer McCarr, give us one. Who, me? Yeah. McCarr. I'm a, I think I have to go McCarr as well. As much as I love the forwards, I feel like when you have a defenseman that could do what McCarr does, it's like – it sets the pace for the forwards that you're going to have. He transports the pucks for him. He's going to run your power play. He could play 22 to 26 minutes a night. It's uh, – I mean, that's I that's the, that was such good. a good poll because it was so hard to to choose who you would take. And it, But I have to go McCarr. I don't know. I had a tough time. I voted on it, actually. And I voted McCarr. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just what I'd have to do. It's a tough call, though. I liked, that's why I like that poll because I'm pretty sure McCarr won it by a pretty good margin. You get the check. Was Heskinen yeah, on it? No, Heskinen wasn't on it. It was the Hughes, McCarr, Point, and Barzell. You're only allowed to add four things, I think, on a poll on Twitter, right? Do Klinberg and Heskinen play together? Yeah, I mean, they all rotate through. It was but, actually pretty close. It was uh, 33% McCarr, 29 Barzell. Wow, Barzell came flying in second. There. A thousand votes. What did uh, That's usually the annual polls for voters, right? And then point in a thousand voters, nineteen and nineteen. All right, point almost dead last. Wow. 
Yeah, I don't know about that. That's a little, it's a little extreme. <laughs> Almost dead last out of four, Rock. He's just people. People give <laughs> no, he, was, the old, he was tied for dead last. He's really down there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, anybody got anything else? Are we going to wrap this up? We've been we've been going for about an hour, almost an hour plus. I want to run. Yeah. A, I want to run one quick thing by you guys. Uh, you know how Tampa struggled in the playoffs for the last few years. They would get there, have a great season, and then you know kind of fizzle out in the playoffs, out in round one, out in round two, just couldn't get it done. Now it looks like you know they kind of turned that corner. They added some pieces to their lineup that you know make them more of a well-rounded team. My question is, do you think Toronto should kind of take a page out of this playbook, uh, retool a little bit, change their roster around a little bit, and uh, you know become more of a, a well-rounded team? That's their plan, I'm sure. Here's what I'll say. There's, I'm going to go a little bit off topic here, but the answer, my answer to it is yes. But you have to remember, Tampa plays in a state with no tax, no state tax. So it's a little bit easier to sign guys cheaper and guys are willing to take – it's not even really a hometown discount because you're saving the, the state tax. So, for example, Stamkos would have got what Tavares got probably on the open market. Hedman would, have, would make what Subban makes on the open market. You can go on and on and on all down that roster. They signed all homegrown guys for a little bit less. And they're still in cap trouble because they have so many good players. But it's all hometown guys. Toronto has been in a position where, you know, you're playing in Toronto a heavily taxed market – and they've maybe had to pay a little more for their stars to keep them long-term than, than they would have liked. You know, if Toronto was flipped the script and they were in Tampa, they might have got the guys a little cheaper. So Tampa's had a little bit more flexibility to go out and keep acquiring depth, like real solid depth. Toronto's going to have to acquire it through smart trades, smart signings, you know, and I'm sure like the Kyle Clifford deal last year was something that you could tell they were trying to do that, get a little heavier, get a little meaner in the bottom six. I think you're going to see a lot more of it because you know, the horses are going to score. You know, the power play is going to be deadly. You got Morgan Riley on the point. I'm sure they're going to add to the point, but I do see Toronto. I, I'm going to say yes to your question. I do see Toronto trying to get creative and, and bolstering depth and some physicality into the lineup. I see them making a couple of trades. I don't know about signing. They're tough. They're handcuffed money-wise. Like you said, there's a lot of variables that go into signing players because it comes you know, down to the money yeah i mean if people say state the state taxing doesn't matter i think that's bullshit i think it definitely does and you're in fucking tampa bay how are you <laughs> like yeah it's you, not, bro, they got that i mean they have a great fan base now i mean they struggled in playoffs but who cares they get top three in the division every year they cup final against chicago it's kind of hard to compare the two but i think i think Toronto's going to do it through trades Ron, you think Toronto's going to overhaul the bottom six? I guess yeah, like three guys make an eleven schmill. Yeah, they. I mean, I guess yeah, they need more depth. They don't have like those bottom six. Well, they have no, no. They have depth. They have they good definitely depth. Definitely do. No, they you need really depth. nice players. Do you think? I think the question was: Do you need a different style of depth? Do you need a different? You know, like do you need a Goudreau, Coleman, Roster Johnny Gord type of line? Yeah, one hundred. One hundred percent. You need like a line down there. It's going to be effective in both ways, like both ends of the ice there. And I just think whatever's going on in Toronto right now is not good. Like imagine the Sezikis oh. and Martin line on Toronto. Yeah, it'd be like, great. You get out there, energy guys buzzing around, hit some people, and it gets like a perfect line for Toronto. I always say I, I pick up for Toronto a lot because I like the I like the way they're building. I like the way they play. Obviously, they're going to try to make some changes, but uh, you got to remember they've been the game seven or game five every single time in the last four years they've been there and lost. 
I mean, you're one game away, one bounce away, one goal away in half most of the cases of who knows what would have happened. Obviously, you could play that game, but I think when you're sitting back looking at your team, yeah, we need to make changes. We need to do a couple little different things, you know, depth-wise, defense-wise, goal to whatever they're going to wind up doing. You hear the goaltending rumors. But you don't want to just blow up your team and, and turn into, you know, a fire sale because you lost in a five-game series six months after the season last ended, you know. The pause. So I'm sure they're going to be patient, smart, but yeah, I'm expecting some moves and expecting a little bit of a, a overhaul to the bottom six and, and a defenseman for sure. But the goaltending rumors are the, uh, are the prom- most prominent ones right now at the Leafs. Yeah. Oh, Freddie Anderson. Freddie Anderson and bringing in a, maybe a Matt Murray type or a Holtby type on free agent. You got Corey Crawford. You got a busy goaltender market. Corey Crawford, Robin good. Leonard. We Martin might have Larry uh, could be available. Yeah, we might host a little trade center next week. Next week, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose trades to you guys. I'm gonna be like Elliot Freeman on here, <laughs> and I'm gonna and I'm gonna say I'm gonna give you guys a team to say I'll say all right. If you're Philadelphia, would you do this for this? And you have to answer as Philadelphia, not just for the trade in general. So we'll do a little segment like that next week, and hopefully you guys will up your trivia game next week. Please, one out of three, maybe get it right. Gonna hit the books, boys. But uh, that's it for this week. Who got who guys- got it right? Nobody. We're all over for one. I mean, I got yours right. <laughs> I got part of yours right, so I get like half credit. Bullshit, dude. You said Jacob Brust. The guy still plays. Dude, I got the hardest question in the uh, in league. Cry about it. All right. Back yeah. to what I'm saying. Thanks for listening this week. We appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoy the uh, the interview with Trevor Latowski. Send us feedback. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Moving on to YouTube now. We got it all checked out. We're everywhere you can find us. So make sure you guys go there. Uh, follow Louis. There, you guys are doing a great job on Twitter. Stop tweeting back at me. It's not me on there. So stop tweeting back saying that I'm talking to myself or whatever's going on because I'm no longer handling any of the social media. So once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week.